You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're having a conversation with someone who's coming to visit us at at Regent in October. Um, And we were talking with him about his most recent book, and his name is Dr. Brian Stanley. He's a he's a professor, a British historian, and he's a, the professor of world Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. And the book that we were talking about is his most recent book called Christianity in the 20th Century: A World History. And so we were talking with him. He he talks. He takes sort of a different tack. In he doesn't take a chronological approach to the history of Christianity in the 20th century, and he doesn't necessarily even take sort of a continental. You know, looking at this part of the world and that part of the world, a continental approach. I, know, I think continental sounds like continental breakfast, but <laughs> you know, a, you know, a, <laughs> moving through different parts of the world. But he takes a thematic approach and then uses case studies to sort of explore that aspect. And we just had a fascinating and great conversation with him about. That. Oh, it's wonderful. He and he, the the neat thing about his book is he highlights uh, people's individuals and stories that haven't oftentimes been highlighted mm-hmm. within church history. And so it's it's a really unique book and perspective on the 20th century. It's also a uh, a really big undertaking as well as it's the the world uh, of, of the Christi- history of Christianity in the 20th century. And so, yeah, we touched on nationalism. Um, we touched on uh, how the Bible ceased to become a European book, uh, talked uh, briefly on um, racism and, and even genocide. And he covered so many topics, we didn't have time to get through all of them, but we're really looking forward to him being here at Regent. So we hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brian Stanley and that you will join us for his lecture in October. Enjoy our conversation with Brian Stanley. Dr. Stanley, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. We're glad to have you. Um, do you want to tell us tell us a little bit about your own sort of journey, whatever you want to share, but particularly as well how you became interested in history. So whatever you want to share about your own journey in that regard. Well, I I read history at university at Cambridge and developed a particular interest in the history of Christianity. I was already a committed Christian by that time and Within the University of Cambridge at that time, there was a, a small group of Christian undergraduates working in the history faculty. Um, we organized a, a regular lunchtime group to talk about issues of faith and, hist- faith and history. And uh, there were two um, young research fellows who really helped us. One was called David Bebbington. Mm, and they- right known to many, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, he later became my best man. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And another was uh, Richard Borkham. Oh, right. Borkham. I never quite know how you pronounce it, but Rich, Richard um, eventually sort of moved out of history into, first of all, uh, um, theology, historical theology, and then more into biblical studies. So mm-hmm. he's known now much more as a New Testament scholar, but in those days... He was a historian of Tudor Puritanism. And uh, those two were really our mentors and our inspiration 
Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. When you when you say you were kind of thinking about the the particular issues about sort of faith and history at that point, what sorts yeah. of issues at that point did you feel like you were wrestling with as historians? Um, and was, are they the same as what you were wrestling with now, or yeah, what were you? Well, they're not with so particular? fundamentally different. I think there mm. were issues about um, what, in any sense, might form a distinctively Christian approach to history, mm. um, given that the the dominant sort of ideological trends then were quite Marxian in their approach. And how how does one uh, adhere to a sort of biblical understanding of the role of God in history without um, maneuvering God into your essays in a way that was... (laughs) Certainly would have been disastrous for mm-hmm. our results. So, <laughs> so it, it was a challenge, and I, I'm not sure we've ever come up with uh, definitive answers to that challenge. But uh, that was the challenge of how to do history Christianly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. really beautiful too that you're kind of you developed out of a affinity towards history, but then also kind of friendship seemed like maybe developed out that being David being in your best man and everything. So that's, that's really neat. Uh, yes, I'm sure that's right. Yeah. yeah I'm one, I'm wondering, we're going to be talking about your most recent book and, mm-hmm. uh, and you wrote a history of Christianity, specifically world Christianity in the 20th century. Yeah. And uh, I, I wonder how first did you decide to write this book? Well, in a sense, I didn't. I, I would never have volunteered to do such a crazy thing. <laughs> it was extraordinarily difficult to do. I was asked to do it um, by Princeton University Press. And after a good deal of um, debate and uh, humming and hiring, I decided I'd say yes rather than do what I originally was going to do next. So, uh, that was in 2011, so mm. it took um, wow. from 2011 yeah. through to 2018 for, mm. for such a big book to um, come to birth. It could have taken much longer, but um, I think the historical profession is sort of littered with examples of people who took too long writing big <laughs> books. And so I, I decided I needed to uh, impose some sort of limitation on it. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. What What were you originally? I'm just curious. Originally interested in writing during that time? Well, it was going to be something more developing my interest in the history of missions, as that's, that's what I am primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of probably since then, I've gone back, gone back to that field much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the 2018 book took me into. You know, large areas of European history and North American history, but um, I don't really consider my specialism, but I had to do my best within those areas. <laughs> yeah. And so, as you said, that's a huge undertaking. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, how did you how did you kind of come at that, giving it was just so large and expansive? And then what was what was kind of the challenges that you sort of, you know, faced as you went along? Yeah, um, well, I think the biggest challenge was how to structure it in a way that was manageable and interesting. Um, 
so that it didn't become a sort of encyclopedia, um, just sort of solemnly going through one part of the world right. after another. Um, I felt that would have been very boring, and one wouldn't actually see the wood from the trees. Mm. Um, so I discarded a geographical, primarily geographical approach. I also discarded a chronological approach, as right. that would have been impossible to um, to keep control of and make uh, an interesting narrative. So I was left with a thematic approach. I I really picked out 15 themes, which I thought were both interesting and important, and tried to illustrate those by selecting two case studies, usually from different parts of the world, um, both relating to that theme. So I put, put them in juxtaposition and each chapter introduces the theme, why it's important, why it was um, big stuff in the 20th century, then illustrated that from these two geographical case studies, and then had a brief conclusion. Mm. So you, oh, it was very, inevitably very selective, and as with so many books of that kind, one's conscious of what one has to leave out. Yeah. And inevitably, reviewer, reviewers pick up on what you leave out more than what you decide to put in. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Can you give us, you know, I mean, you don't have to tell us all of them, but do you want to give us just a sense of some of the themes that, 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 you, that you drew upon? Okay. Well, um, Christianity and nationalism was one which I think mm. is, is particularly important and which I think has become even more important since I wrote mm. the book. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to introduce ways in which um, that theme was approached differently by Catholics and Protestants and by Europeans and by Asians, particularly in the early part of the 20th century. So that, that was very important. Um, I, I was interested in, in questions of changing attitudes to gender and sexuality where you know the, the extent and rapidity of change, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century, going on up to the present day, has been remarkable. So uh, that was one I talked about. Um, uh, understandings of particularly profit figures in the history of Christianity and how um, the, the tendency of Western Christianity to privilege pastor and priest has been challenged in the 20th century by mm. those who have much more focused on um, both Old and New Testament material about the role of the prophet. That's mm. led obviously into Pentecostal Christianities mm -hmm. and a whole range of um, independent movements in non-Western Christianity that have become um, you know, almost mainstream now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, oh, that's I, really helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and I'd love to dive just into a few a few of those. But before we do, uh, it's such a unique book to structure it thematically with the two different mm. case studies as well. Sounds very interesting. Um, it, and in it, you you do the case study approach, and you say that it gives also prominence to some individual Christian men and women mm. or stories which might not. Uh, 
might not find their way conveniently structured in history, like not mm-hmm. so prominent people that were were told about or stories that were shared about why why did you decide to highlight unknown and not so prominent people and their stories within Christian history? I think because it's it's intrinsically more interesting to tell tell readers about people they may not know about mm-hmm. um, rather than you know popes and archbishops and yeah. <laughs> the high profile figures who at least they may know something about right and so I've always been more interested in popular Christianity bottom up Christianity and the role of hidden figures in promoting religious change and in what what Christian belief and movements of revival and so on mean to ordinary people mm-hmm. um, rather than simply concentrating on formal uh, ecclesiastical structures or formal structures of theological definition, important though those are. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, Christianity is a lived religion, and I think it's best best approached by trying to see what it meant for some people you may not have heard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have to dig very far to find those people? Um, well, I think because of a case study approach, I was digging relatively deep yeah. within fairly narrow sectors of ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made it easier to to come up with particular individuals who I felt you know did did deserve some attention for that particular case study, even if in the grand scheme of things they might seem odd people to highlight mm-hmm. um, you know when all sorts of popes and bishops and chairs of synods may not appear at all in the narrative, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, it's you often hear people saying, "Well, all, all history is an interpretation in some sense, yeah. right?" You sort of you're in. Is, is that true? Or yeah, that you're sort of you're you're choosing what stories to tell, so that not that it's it's not manipulating history, but it's sort of what are you highlighting to tell the particular story? Is that would you say that's true? That history telling of history is an interpretation in in a uh, sense. Yes, I think all history writing has to be an interpretation of evidence. Right. Um, What marks out good history writing from poor history writing is that the evidence is researched thoroughly and it's interpreted with fairness so that um, you're prepared to come to terms with bits of evidence that don't fit your preconceptions or even your grand theory. Yeah, um, but you handle them honestly. Um, but I think without interpretation, um, history just becomes uh, an unin- unintelligible jumble mm. of dates <laughs> and facts. Um, it's it's the linking of those so-called facts together into a narrative and and even an argument. That's mm-hmm. what, um, to my mind good history writing is all about. Mm-hmm. Nobody's interpretation is going to be the last word, um, but you know, a good history book is one that provokes debate and argument and further research. 
Right. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like uh, in some sense, you have to be upfront with your own background and kind yeah. of ideological. You talk about it as limitations or like your own historical yeah. backgrounds. I mean, can and and you say like even even though it's not actually for historians wholly possible to successfully ascend or or achieve some mm. like wholly uh, transcend your limitations or your backgrounds. Yeah. How how though can historians attempt to transcend their own limitations or backgrounds while still being upfront about yeah. where they're interpreting mm. from? Um, well, I think it it basically comes down to good historical method. If you've been trained to um, sort of think outside the box of your own uh, your own background, your own ideological framing, and to research thoroughly, exhaustively, to read documents with empathy. I think human empathy is one mm -hmm. of the most important um, qualities of a historian. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you let everybody off the hook or you suspend moral judgment altogether, mm. but you're always trying to understand what, what makes people tick. You know, even if they're the baddies of, of current narrative, even if they're the imperialists and the colonialists, you're trying to understand um, why they did what they did and why they mm. said what they did. Um, you still, at the end of the day, I think, come to a judgment, which is probably mm. evident in what you write, but you don't leap in with judgment straight away. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem of a lot of current discourse, particularly on subjects like empire, is that people leap in with their judgment um, before, before they've actually taken much trouble and time to try and understand and assess and interpret the evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, it's so good, the importance of yeah, empathy and actually trying mm. to listen well yeah. to the evidence so that you actually then interpret it. As you say, you can't not. You can't not bring your own yeah. background in some ways, but that yeah, but the importance of empathy and empathy, yeah, I mean, empathetical yeah. reading of history. I think in many ways a historian is rather like a missionary. I mean, the missionary is somebody who goes into a mm. an alien culture, a different land, and tries to make sense of what they see mm. um, in order to communicate uh, Christianity and communicate Christ. Um, and a historian goes, travels into a different land and a different culture and has to, has to be an observer, a listener, as in the sense to be taught by that foreign land before they can really make sense of it. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've sometimes heard when, when um, you've got professors of either church history or the history of Christianity, mm -hmm. I've noticed recently that people are moving more to saying the history of Christianity rather than the history than yeah. say a church historian. Is that why is that is is that is that true? That is that my observation of that correct? Because we're trying to move yeah. away from sort of a the institutional I don't know, is that true? <laughs> By just... and large, yes. Um I mean my own university have moved from the uh, the term by and large from ecclesiastical history to history of Christianity. Right though we still have a chair uh, of ecclesiastical history. But um, I think it reflects what we were talking about earlier, the importance of popular belief, um, 
the importance of moving beyond formal structures, top-down approaches to mm. to history, and realizing that um, ultimately it's about um, people's belief and practice in their daily lives. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so history of Christianity, I think, is a better term on the whole. Yeah, mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brian, I'd love to delve a little more deeply into a few uh, sections and chapters of your book. And in, in the second chapter, which you, you touched mm. on, you discussed the topic of Christianity and nationalism. Yeah. And which, you know, many today have kind of a negative perspective when that comes to mind or certain uh, places um, come to yeah. mind. But you actually say in the, in the first two decades of the, the 20th century that nationalism was not generally aligned in opposition to Christianity, nor even even the whole West. Can you explain what was going on and why this was? Yes, I mean, I think it's perhaps a, perhaps a bit more complex than I than I indicated in mm. that um, that giveaway sentence. I mean, for Asian Christians, especially in the first half of the twentieth century. Nationalism was almost always a good thing because um, if you were trying to defend your faith against the charge that it was um, simply the result of Western colonial imposition, um, which was what most Christians as small minorities in Asia were having to do and in a sense are still having to do, um, the best way of doing that is to actually show that a Christian can be a better nationalist than than a Hindu or a Muslim or a Marxist or a Confucianist. Mm. Um, It actually helped to validate your faith if you could say, well, actually, Christianity doesn't uh, extinguish national aspirations. It can be harmonized with them. Mm. I think the problem was that after the First World War, Mm -hmm. um, most Western Christian leaders, with good reason, tended to say, well, actually, look at the mess that nationalism has made. Um, uh, Nationalism is actually a real threat to Christianity and to its unity. Mm. Uh, And in a sense, you know, I I think they were right as well. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So you tended to to get in the interwar years developing a great clash of perspectives on whether you run with the flow of nationalism mm-hmm. or whether you try and restrain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, in a sense, where we still are. Um, so, you know, some of the issues provoked by the war in Ukraine and the support of the Russian Orthodox Church for it are, are ultimately raising these same sort of issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would certainly hold that nationalism is actually a bigger threat to mm-hmm. united Christian witness than differences of faith and order, mm-hmm. which the right. ecumenical movement has spent so much time trying to thrash out, but it yeah. tends to duck the issue of nationalism. Right. Yeah. What What were the two case studies you gave gave for that section? I'm just curious in the the juxt- yeah. juxtaposition there. Well, uh, it was Catholic Poland and um, Protestantism in Korea. 
Mm. So, um, you know, Poland is a country that has for a long time sort of struggled to um, define itself as a country. It's been sort of walked all over by Russians and Germans and others and um, yeah, only really in the 20th century did it succeed in establishing its stable identity as a nation and it did so in very close relationship with the Catholic Church hmm. and uh, you know reached a, a, a climate in the a climax in the Polish Pope of John Paul II um, so the relationship of uh, Catholicism and nationalism has been very close in Poland and remains so. Mm-hmm. Um, in in Korea, you have a sort of Protestant version of the same theme. Mm-hmm. Um, in that Korea is the odd odd one out in Asia, whereas in most of Asia, um, the the coming of Christianity was resisted as a threat mm-hmm. to national identity. Um, in Korea, um, Christianity largely promulgated by uh, American and some Canadian, some Australian missionaries was seen as the best way of combating the threat of Japanese imperialism mm-hmm. and Japanese colonial rule. Interesting. Um, so because the imperial threat was a nation one, um, the appeal of Christianity as a religion from the West was actually very strong. Yeah. Um, but I think that has led to certain problems in Korean Christianity in more more recent times, mm. uh, where quite a sort of close linkage between Protestant Christianity and American cultural influence has been mm. perhaps one of the weaknesses of. Korean Protestantism. So, kind of the the maybe the conclusion or in these case studies is to point out that Christianity can both like affirm national sentiment in the sense that it can unify a yeah. nation, but also subvert nationalism in the in the case of Korea. And so, you're kind of pointing those out. I just wanted to make that that clarification. Is that is that kind yeah, of what you're? What yeah, you're pointing so at? I mean, I think that's right. That um, you know, Christianity in any one context um, has to, in a sense, sympathise with national aspirations, whenever those are aspirations for freedom and dignity, mm-hmm. and aspirations to resist control from outside, um, but. The Christian's loyalty can never be uh, to absolute uh, mm, mm-hmm. national um, identification because yeah. ultimately Christians belong to a transnational people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, so one of the other things, sort of linking in with that, one of the other topics you cover is how the Bible actually then ceased to be a European book. It almost became a transnational book, I guess, as well. Do you want to sort of expand on that and how that came about? Yes. Well, I think the 20th century is the great age of biblical translation. Mm -hmm. Um, The 19th century is often called the great age of Christian missions. Um, In the sense it was in terms of geographical expansion, but it wasn't in terms of conversion. That 
happened much more in the 20th century and on into the 21st. And that was because it's really only after the First World War that many peoples begin to get significant portions of uh, both New and Old Testament in their own vernacular language. Mm. And it's, it's that which enables people to um, read and hear the Bible in their own cultural terms mm. and to begin to make scriptural narratives their own. And, you know, that, that was, that really had to happen before people, peoples would begin to convert in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 19th century, it's much more the people on the fringes of society, the marginal people who are attracted to what the missionaries bring. Mm-hmm. But in the 20th century, as people begin to first hear and then read the scriptures for themselves, that they actually begin to identify um, with episodes and themes in biblical narrative. Mm. So particularly in Africa, um, it's it's the translation of the Old Testament in, in many ways that's so powerful as people begin to identify with the story of enslaved and mm-hmm. redeemed Israel. Mm-hmm. And so Africans who had themselves been uh, the subject of enslavement and slave trafficking um, begin to make the story of God's chosen enslaved and then redeemed people their own. Mm. And that's yeah. very powerful. Yeah. And so... Um, all forms of sort of theology of liberation come out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that kind of a unifying factor within Christianity between Protestants, Catholics, and maybe Orthodox? Is that, I mean, obviously that there's different mm. translations of the Bible, but was that in the 20th century, was that a unifying uh, factor? I think it was to a large extent. Um, so I think, you know, some of the, divisions inherited from European Christianity, they don't disappear uh, in the non-Western world, but they become relativized. Um, So certainly if you travel in Africa now and you go to what what is formerly a Protestant church and go to what is formerly a Catholic church, you may actually be impressed more by the commonalities of worship style and the sense of joy and exuberant worship, mm-hmm. um, the sense of the power of the spirit, the the continuing relevance of a, a God who acts in people's lives, mm-hmm. um, whether it's formally Protestant, Catholic, or or indeed Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, some of the Orthodox churches of East Africa are actually in Kenya and Uganda actually owe their origins more to Protestant missions initially than they do to mm. Orthodox interesting. Uh, missions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so interesting. There's so much we could we could go into and, and cover in your book. Mm. There's there's a lot of themes, and it's, it's kind of an, an incredible feat. I wonder, though, you, you know, you share um, the changes and shifts that happened throughout the, uh, the 20th century, and you share openly about your faith, like you're writing as a Christian historian, mm-hmm. after writing this book, how has this 
impacted your own faith? Hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think all the history that I do, um, on the one hand, it, it impresses on you the, the grace and tolerance of God with human fallibility and the ability of um, the church to keep going and keep growing despite um, the foibles of Christians and despite their mm. um, tendency to polarize in so many of the big issues that they have to gripple, grapple with. Um, but on the other hand, it, it does give you a certain degree of, well, not I hope not cynicism, but mm. um, <laughs> a certain skepticism mm. about some of the big claims that church leaders and even theologians may make um, when um, you tend, as a historian, you tend to say, well, in a sense, we've been there before and we've gone down that route before and uh, it hasn't always proved quite as uh, as rosy and root, root into the promised land as you think it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you yeah, tell us a little bit more about that scepticism? Like when when did you feel sceptical? Like over what sorts of things or? Um, well, I mean, I, the saddest chapter in the book is obviously the one that deals with genocide, mm-hmm. that mm. deals with um, the Shah, the, gen- the Holocaust, and with mm. the Rwandan genocide of, of 1994. And... Um, you know, it attempts to uh, dig into some of the rooting of racial attitudes in um, apparently well-meaning and serious theological or biblical research that both German and Belgian um, biblical scholars and theologians got into. Mm-hmm. But because it was all... Um, permeated by certain assumptions about race and the superiority of some so-called races over others, um, the whole thing led ultimately to desperately tragic conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suppose that gets me thinking about um, the vast amount of argument and writing that there is about Christianity and race today. now, I'm all for um, stalwart opposition to racism and racial injustice. But I think the problem is that there isn't a sufficiently stringent Christian interrogation of the very idea of race, mm-hmm. um, which ultimately is a straw man. I think it sort of collapses once you start um, looking at it in, in great detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it fits some situations like, um, the US and South Africa very well, but uh, once you start applying it in other contexts, it, it begins to collapse in on itself. Mm-hmm. I think Christians are those who, who who need to actually affirm very clearly, look, there is one human race, and ultimately um, distinctions erected on colour or any other arbitrary category are, are ultimately... Um, 
insubstantial. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. In in just closing, um, in the discussion on your on your book on the the history of the twentieth century of Christianity, you you begin um, sharing how the mag the magazine the Christian Oracle changed their mm. name to the Christian Century, and you also you also end with this, um, and and kind of a question that you had that. Couldn't couldn't necessarily answer it was was the was the twentieth century a, a a Christian century like that's that seems almost mm. impossible to answer but in some sense that's what the the magazine was almost kind of yeah. like going into was that this century yeah. is going to be a Christian yeah. century and uh, I, I wonder like this is an impossible question to ask but um, from your book like what can we take away from the twentieth century or maybe a better question would be what questions do you still have mm. even coming out like what are you asking coming out of the the 20th 20th century yeah um well i think you can argue it was a more christian century to the extent that the church grew more extensively and more rapidly than probably in any century after the very early centuries mm. um so yeah, the reversal of and the dispersal of the centers of gravity of Christianity in our own lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, mm-hmm. um, has been quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is that is something we really do need to take away and say mm. you know, that happened, particularly in the second half of the 20th century going on into our own century. That's been really profound. Um, mm. So the magazine wasn't fully off. No, it wasn't wholly off in that yeah. respect, but I think <laughs> it was um, deluded in the sense that it expected um, the 20th century to be an age in which Christian m- moral standards would become sort of universally mm. uh, right. respected and would become the norm of human relations and mm. um, war would become a thing of the past. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was it was deeply flawed in terms of 
um, liberal progressivist ideas of the advance of civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Are there questions you're coming away with from from the 20th century? Yeah. Like you're still asking. Well, I think yeah. Inevitably, there are questions of you know where is it going to go from here, mm. and I'm I'm not not a prophet. Historians <laughs> are not called to be prophets. Um, you know, on the one hand, I I deeply uh, applaud and I'm thankful for the growth of Christianity in the non-Western world. On the other hand, there are themes within within its current uh, life that give me concern, particularly the prosperity gospel, mm. um, which I regard as fundamentally a invasion of individualism into um, into non-Western Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think mm. it's all, it's not for Europeans like me really to try and resist that. It has to come from Africans and non-Western Christians themselves mm. who uh, I think need to be encouraged, that's all we can do, to, to question some of the uh, individualism that ultimately is driving the movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it has the potential to derail a good deal of non-Western Christianity. Yeah. Mm. Um, and we have to try and, or non-Western Christians have to try and delineate boundaries between a properly holistic gospel and a materialistic gospel. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And it's not easy to know where those boundaries lie. Mm. And when you say the invasion of of individualism, would you yeah. like, in the sense that that's a, that's the invasion of a Western cultural mindset, which we see in individualism as opposed, you know, an individual yeah. culture versus a more communal culture. It's actually, is is that what you're meaning? It's the it's sort of there is a is it a syncretism sort of or not? Um, it's not even a syncretism factor because it's coming from another yeah. culture into like it's coming from yeah. I know, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of argument that? in the scholarship as to the balance between um, Western externality and whether the prosperity gospel actually is a thoroughly African or indigenous thing. Right, right. Um, but I mean, it, because it's global, um, yeah. I think it has to be understood ag- against the background of a whole network of global influences, mm-hmm. um, many, though not all of which, come from the US. Yeah. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think when you look at, um, say, the Hebrew Bible, the emphasis in, in the Hebrew Bible is indeed on the flourishing of the people of God, the covenanted people of God, in mm-hmm. response um, to the grace of God. But it's it's ultimately about the people of God as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's not about how individuals can get rich mm-hmm. um, if individuals... Um, take a, a sort of legalistic understanding to their covenant with God. It, mm-hmm. It's about what contributes to the flourishing of the people of God as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's their faithfulness um, in walking the ways of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Brian, this is getting me more and more excited about your visit to Regent oh. in October <laughs> this year. We're, look- <laughs> We're looking forward to having you. Okay. When you, when you come... What are you yeah. what are you going to be talking about with us when you come? What are you sort of what are you hoping for? What questions are you hoping to address or wrestle okay. with us when you come? Um, 
Well, I, I've given it the title, rather long-winded title, from conversion and civilization to development, question mark, shifting patterns in British and American Protestant globalism mm. in the 19th and 20th centuries. <laughs> That's a great that's a historian bit. It's like, it's like, yeah. it's like, here's the thing, here's the place, here's the time frame. So it's really about how the Protestant international conscience has changed in shape, in emphasis, mm-hmm. if you compare the early 19th century with today. Now, it depends a little bit where you're looking. I mean, if if you're looking at American conservative religion, it probably hasn't changed that much. Mm. But certainly from where I, as a Brit Brit stand, and I suspect where most Canadians stand, um, the shift is pretty marked in Mm. that um, Christians, even evangelical Christians, no longer get so worked up about the eternal destiny of the heathen, as they used to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, they get worked up about questions of justice and poverty um, and child welfare and all of the issues that the development industry, if you like, has placed centrally on our map. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a big shift, but... What I want to suggest is that in the 19th century, there was an emphasis on development. It wasn't always called development. It was actually more often called civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it, it was often in close association with programs for the construction of a church that would be able to stand on its own two feet. Mm-hmm. Um, there was quite a close relationship between church planting and development. Right. Uh, and I think now, actually, they're diverging. So, in the development, not, not, not really more of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, right. but we'll see yeah. how what people think about that. But yeah. uh, that's what I want to be talking about. <laughs> that's going to be great. We're looking forward to having you. So, thanks so much for your time. And thanks for kind of just, yeah, helping us get a bit of a sense of that broad history but people need to read the book to get it to dive into a few more of those themes mm. sure, uh, yeah. that you raised yeah, yeah. i don't need yeah. to read the book to but, enjoy the lecture i hope but no that's right that's a rather <laughs> different pack, that's right we yeah totally well thanks so much brian thanks for making time to be with us not at all we're looking forward to having you look forward to meeting you both thanks for listening to the regent college podcast follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to discover more about regent college its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.